You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, lift your hand. Ushers are coming down right now. They would love to give you a Bible. Uh, And uh, if you don't own a Bible at all and and you're going to get one this morning by lifting your hand, please take that home. That's free for you. We want you to have the Word of God in your life. We want you to have it today. We're going to be looking right at God's Word today, so make sure that you have that. Uh, and we also ask, again, that if you need to use the washroom, that you use the facilities, the, the porta potty at the back of the lot, so we can keep the washrooms inside designated for Hope Kids and to minimize distractions throughout the service. So if you're not there yet, Mark chapter 2, it's in the New Testament, right after the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark chapter 2. And we will re- I'll read this passage so we can read through this together. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. <laughs> and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in, their, in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier, uh, he said, uh, is it easier for me to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I pray, I just got to fix my mic here for a second because I'm not that good at tech as these guys are, and I forget things. Here we go. I pray that we are amazed like this crowd. I pray that today we are all amazed about what Jesus can do, because the danger of a story like this is that many of us have heard this story and before, and, and therefore we might be familiar. And the problem with being familiar with a story is often we think we know what the point is of the story, and we don't let it shock and teach us, because we think, Oh, I already know the answers of this. But this story is filled with twists and turns in order to reorient our thoughts and our beliefs about Jesus Christ. This passage is meant to unveil our eyes about who Jesus really is and what he's really about. It's, it's to see the objectives and the values of Christ. That's what this passage is about. And so there are four values that are revealed in this passage that we're going to be going through today. And all of them ultimately point to what verse 10 says. If you look in your Bible at verse 10, it says this to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. All these values point to this. And now that may seem like an unoriginal focus for today's sermon, and you may be thinking, oh, I've heard this one before. But I pray and I hope that your eyes and all of our hearts are open to know Jesus more intimately today, to experience the gospel with greater clarity than ever before. 
And at this end of history, I know it's just, it's not shocking to relate Jesus to forgiving sins, but the ancient audience who received this document, this gospel, they wouldn't have necessarily heard that. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the occasion that Mark is choosing to write about Christ's forgiveness? Because Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, is the first instance we see, this story is the first instance in that gospel of Jesus offering and speaking about forgiveness. And Mark's gospel is the, actually the earliest written gospel. So this, in the ancient world, was the first written account that many in the ancient world would ever read that Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. Up until now, he'd been a legend. They heard about this man named Jesus, and now reading with their own eyes, hearing this story, they hear that Jesus offers forgiveness. So this is possibly the earliest time, also in Jesus' ministry, that he has revealed this goal and this objective. And the question for us today is this, why this occasion to reveal that? Why this story? Why this moment? What happened in the story that sparked Jesus to reveal the ultimate objective of his life? And the key to that question, the answer to that question is right in verse 5. Would you look with me at verse 5? It says this, and when he saw their faith. When he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, their faith is what sparked Jesus to reveal this mission of forgiveness. It was the faith of these men, these men expecting Jesus to heal their friend, these men so desperate for the sake of their friend, and so confident in who Jesus is that they even vandalized the roof, okay? And they interrupted Jesus in the midst of his teaching. That's what's going on. Jesus is teaching to a crowd, and people are hanging on his every word, and they're breaking the ceiling in the midst of the teaching. Yet Jesus didn't condemn these men in the middle of them doing this. In fact, he's honored by them. And this reveals the first value that we discover about Jesus in this passage. We discover that Jesus values our faith in his ability to save and his desire to save. Because in Jesus' eyes, their effort and their action, it was a demonstration of faith. He didn't just see their effort. He didn't just see their getuitiveness. It doesn't say that he saw their hardworking attitude. It doesn't say that he saw their perseverance or their creativity. It says he saw their faith. So if it's his, their faith that drove him, it's, if it's their faith that drove them to do this, what do we learn about the faith of these men? That's really what we want to know. What is it that Jesus was honored by? What was their faith in? And here's what we see. We see that they believed, they believed that their friend needed help, number one. They knew that their friend desperately needed help. Number two, they knew that their, the best help for their friend was going to be Jesus. They knew that, they could, they, that the best help they could get for him was Jesus. And then even though they'd be vandalizing a home and interrupting the teaching, they still believed that Jesus would take delight in healing their friend. And so before we even talk about putting our faith into action, as this passage does call us, before we get into that, we need to ask ourselves this question, what do we believe? What do we believe? What do we put our faith in? What do you and I, what do we believe? What do we think of Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus still saves? Do we believe that people need to get to him? Do we believe that this is an urgent need of their life? Do we believe that Jesus wants to save? Do we believe that Jesus is too busy doing something else right now, that he won't be doing something and do miraculous work for those around us? And we nod our heads because our heads say yes and our minds say yes, but let's be honest. And I hope that you can be with yourself before the Lord. Doubt creeps in to the heart. 
doubt creeps in. And man, does it creep in easily. It just doesn't take long for doubt to creep into our hearts and undermine our faith. Our head knowledge doesn't always sink its way down to our heart. And it doesn't take much for us to think, maybe this world is beyond repair. It doesn't take much for us to think, maybe, maybe I should give up, on, give up hope on people around me because I'm not sure that they're really going to change. I'm not sure that Jesus is really going to change their lives. I'm not convinced. Maybe that's what's so happening in your heart. Even though your head says Jesus saves. And maybe for you today, as you're in here today, it's a spouse that will never change. It's a friend who will stay in their ways. It's a wayward child you think will never return. Because we see their hardships. We see their hard hearts. We see and hear their experiences. We see them in addictions that they can't seem to escape. And a part of us at the bottom of our hearts wonders if maybe they're too far gone. We've been there. I've been there. I'm there regularly. Our head and our biblical knowledge tells us that no one is too far gone, but doubt creeps in. And it doesn't take much for us to lose trust in the effectiveness of the gospel to transform lives. I grew up in a church in Oshawa, and my two best friends who I grew up with, we grew up together going to church and going to youth group and started a Christian band, which was a bad idea, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and they, but as they grew up, they grew distant from Jesus at a time when, when um, I was growing more and more in love with him. And I prayed for them, and I, I was hopeful, but there was a part of me that thought maybe they were too far gone. Because one of them was really caught up in fame and influence and caught up in the things of this world. And the other was in such deep seclusion and deep depression, he would rarely answer a call or show up. And funny enough, at one point, they both reached out to me around the same time. And, and, and I, I knew, okay, I need to invite them to something. Now, they would maybe come to church the odd time, but I was like, oh, I, need, I need to invite them to something, even just beyond church a little bit, maybe another activity at the church. And the only thing else that was going on around that time at the church was an event called Secret Church. And Secret Church was an event, not Seeker Church, but Secret, like, shh, I have a secret, Seeker, Secret. I can't say those two words next to each other. Um, but this event is actually a six-hour lecture event. Six hours of being yelled at <laughs> with the words of Jesus. Yes, and it was a six-hour event, and it was, I think it was lectures on the false gospels and cults. And this was the only event, and I was like, okay, I guess I'll invite them to this event. And I never thought they would A, come, or B, even want to come after hearing what it was about. Six hours, like I'm talking from 6 p.m., and it would go, the guy would go too long, so it was more like six and a half, seven hours. You'd start at 6 p.m., you wouldn't get home to bed till two in the morning of constant lectures. It's like drinking theology from a fire hose. This was not a seeker-sensitive event. It was nothing but note-taking and just being quiet. Shh, I'm busy. I'm taking notes. But you know what? Both of them came. And I could just so remember sitting here, taking my notes, being just in awe that the fact that these two guys were sitting next to me, taking notes, not sitting on their phones, but leaning in, taking better notes than me, honestly. And it was a turning point for both of them. 
And it was a turning point for both of them in, in growing in maturity and growing in Christ-likeness. And it was a, a beautiful thing. And, and then they continued to grow. And even before I came to Hope Kelowna, but when I left and I was coming out here from Oshawa, both of these young men, um, I say young because I like to imagine I'm young, they were serving in the church and growing in maturity and making disciples. And two guys who I knew well, who I, in my heart, had written off and who I said, oh, there's not the right event for these guys, came to the non-seeker-sensitive event and ended up following more in love with Jesus. We come with, up with so many excuses. We come up with so many ideas that we believe will hinder people from believing in Jesus. And if we don't have the right sermon or the right church event, maybe we look at their lives and we say, hey, they've got hardships and trials. They've been suffering. They're addicted to stuff. They have accessibility issues. And we, and we write them off. Or, or at the other end of life, maybe we see their prosperity and we see their confidence. We see their affluence and their independence. And we go, I don't know. Maybe they're too far gone. And we point to all these and we say, I know Jesus saves, but do we forget so easily in our hearts that Jesus came to save us all? Whether life on earth has been good or bad, Jesus longs for all to be saved and that all types of people of all walks of life will be saved even through non-seeker sensitive events. These men in this story, they faced obstacles too. Their friend was too paralyzed to walk. The crowd was too big to get through. The room was too small. And Jesus seemed a little too busy for them. But their faith in Jesus' ability to save and their faith in Jesus' desire to save was bigger than any of these obstacles. Because the desperation for the need of their friends was worth the weight in carrying and lifting and lowering his dead weight to Jesus. And, and I don't know where you're at. I know where I got kicked this week by this passage is that I needed to repent and turn from my doubt. I, I say I love Jesus. I sing I love Jesus. But I need to repent and turn from my doubt. I need to believe again that Jesus is, is stronger and more powerful than all the obstacles of life. And that Jesus not only has the ability to save, but the desire to save all of those around me. But maybe you're in a different place. Maybe you're coming here and you're thinking you're the dead weight. Maybe you think that you're too far gone. Maybe you think the obstacles of your life are too big for Christ to make any difference. That, that maybe it's too far, I could never be forgiven. Maybe you question whether or not Jesus really wants you, measly old you. Whether he loves you, whether he could forgive you. I have the word of God here for you today to tell you he wants you and he loves you and he died on a cross to save you and to have you. So give your heart over to him today. After service, there will be prayer partners who want to pray for you and pray, please church, do not be ashamed of getting prayer. Prayer is where power is. Go and pray at the end of the service. Pray with each other. Pray for the names of those who you've been doubting Jesus can save. Pray in repentance of your doubt. I pray that we all would do this. The next value that we see is that Jesus values faith put into action. You see, these men come to the home and they can't get their friend to the front where Jesus was, so they decide to go through the roof. 
And often roofs were like rooftop patios. There were stairs on the side of the house in order to get up. And there was a place up there to escape the darkness of the home. And the roof would have had cross beams that went across from one wall to the other. And then they would have had thatched sticks and branches and twigs and then layers of dirt. And Luke's gospel even references that there would have been tiles for them to dig through. Now, I don't know if they were up to date on Canadian building code, um, if they had 16-inch on center or 24-inch on center beams, but I don't even know if that's building code. I'm just making it up. Um, But in order to lower a human being through a roof, you need a sizable hole. You need a big hole to lower a human being with their mat and their pallet or whatever through the ceiling. You're not going to make a small hole. And these men took apart this roof. There would have been dirt breaking through. Just imagine the crowd in there and the dirt and the dust filling up the space and light breaking through and these shadowy figures. Is that a person coming through the roof? Like, what is going on here? And I don't know. They probably didn't have, like, a local home hardware or anything to get rope and, like, a carabiner. And... what would they use? What, did, did they barrel of monkeys this thing like, and just cling arms? It doesn't say. You know what it does? It leaves us leaving this on, in our heads that they had obstacles. They had to carry the dead weight of a person up to a roof, break through established construction, and then carefully lower the dead weight of a person down to Jesus. And it's not an easy task. I know we see movies and Tom Cruise can run down the sides of a building with nothing but yarn and a leather belt, but this is real life. This really happened. These men went through incredible inconvenience to bring their needy friend to Jesus. It would be tiring. It would be hard labor, but it was worth it to bring their friend to Jesus. It was out of their way. Who knows? It could have been at the expense of a day's work, but it was worth it to bring their friend to Jesus, the healer, the savior, the king of kings. Their effort and the inconvenience of what they did was based on the depth of what they believed and cherished. Church, for us today, the question is this. What do we base our belief in? What do we cherish about Jesus? Because our effort and our inconvenience of what we will do will be based on that. So if Jesus matters to us, if we believe he is healer, if we believe he's savior, king of kings, we will put in the effort. We will endure inconveniences. We will overcome obstacles. So what will we do? What will we do based on what we know to be true of Jesus? How much effort will we put in? And by the way, church, we're dealing with a very similar and a very parallel issue to this passage right ourselves here at Hope Kelowna. We're dealing with a very similar issue. We've been doing two services inside because we can't fit all of us in one room at once. Praise the Lord. So we've been doing two services. We're outside right now because we wanted to make ample room for new people to come and hear Jesus, King of Kings, Savior, Lord of Lords. And you know how that happens? It just magically falls out of the sky and it all comes together. No. You know what happens? People who believe that Jesus is going to do something amazing and powerful, that Jesus still saves and wants to save, people like that get up early in the morning. They put on three to six hour days on top of their full work week in order to put canopies over your head to make sound happen. They run like madmen to the back to make sure there's power available. They put in that incredible work because their belief is not in vain. Because he has been doing incredible work. He has been changing the lives of people. He has been blessing the the effort and the service of those who put their faith in him. 
And we're, that's not the only obstacles. We have more obstacles that we're facing as a church in terms of bringing people to Jesus. We can't find a building big enough. We prayed and pursued a possible building purchase, and that's no longer an immediate option. And our workers and our volunteers and our leaders, they're, they're serving and they're working with effort and capacity. But to be honest, a lot of them are be working beyond capacity. And it's a pretty nice day outside today, but we can't stay out here all winter. <laughs> We've had obstacles and we will see more obstacles as a church here at Hope Kelowna. And the reality is the solution is not a bigger building. The solution is in this passage. The solution we see is throughout the book of Acts. It's throughout the New Testament. It's not larger buildings and more staff members. The solution by which Jesus longs to save people is through people who put their faith in him and put that faith into action and into effort. That means people growing in discipleship and in maturity. That does mean planting churches, multiplying disciples, baptizing new, baptizing new believers into maturity, establishing elders, raising up worship leaders, more people on setup, more people on ushering, more people on greeting, more people on welcoming and small group leaders, raising up more preachers, sending people and money to places that are far away. And it all comes at a cost. And if you're thinking financial, you're wrong. Finances are worked out. Jesus has storehouses of money. It's people putting in effort and activity in order for people to hear the name of Jesus, willingly carrying the dead weight of someone else so that people can experience a transformed life. So here's what this passage guarantees. I love it. Jesus takes delight and will bless the effort of those who put their faith in him. Now, I don't know what the future holds for us as a church exactly, I don't know what is going to happen here in the Okanagan and in Canada. And if you have that in detail, please just put that on a napkin and pass that on to a staff member. We would really appreciate that because we don't know exactly where we're going, but we do know this, that Jesus wants to work through the effort, efforted action of those who put their faith in him. So this is an invitation. This is a call to action. This is the call. Will we discard of our doubts and deepen our faith in him? Will we step out in action? And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet as Savior, as the forgiver of your sins, he's not just calling you to some personal, individualistic salvation experience. What Jesus is calling you to is to be a fisher of men and a lowerer of paralytics. And the more we realize the desperate needs of those around us, the more effort we will go to to bring them to Jesus. When we bring people to Jesus, when we share the gospel with them, when we bring them to a loving Savior who cares for their deepest needs, yes, these men, they interrupted Jesus' teaching, but he paused, doesn't he? He stops what he's doing and he offers forgiveness and cares for this paralytic man. This story is the first story where we really, really see and beautifully Jesus pausing his focus on the 99 to care for the one right in front of him. So beautiful. We have a savior who's not distracted by influence and fame. He is focused on the needs of the broken. And Jesus points us to this passage. He points us to our most desperate need. That's what he's doing. When he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he points us to the real need of our lives, the need to be forgiven. And this brings us to our third value. Jesus came to forgive and redeem sinners. See, everyone sees a man lowered through a roof. They see him lowered through the roof because he has a physical disability, unable to walk, unable to move. But what Jesus saw when this man was lowered through the roof was a spiritual disability. He saw that this man's body was not as broken as his soul was, and he needed to experience forgiveness. 
Because Jesus didn't come to fix this man's and yours and my earthly physical needs alone. He came to do exactly this. He came to rescue sinners from eternal damnation. Praise him. He came to free us from the guilt, the weight of our guilt and the weight of our sin. And that's why his message is repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's not save up your money and buy stocks in Tesla. That's not his message. His message is repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent meaning rid yourself of sin, rid ourselves of sin and get right with God. So when Jesus looked at these men, when he saw the activity of their faith, it drove him to go beyond healing this man's physical health and he focused on addressing this man's most desperate need, the need to be forgiven. This man needed to be forgiven of his sins. He needed to be lifted from the weight of his guilt. And whether he realized it or not, the weight of guilt was paralyzing and ruining his life way more than his inability to walk. And to be clear, Jesus didn't forgive this man's sin so that people would think his sin caused his paralysis. That's not why Jesus was forgiving his sin. I know many have thought that and many have taught that, but that's not what's being taught here. His sin did not necessarily cause his paralysis. Jesus' purpose in separating the miracle of forgiveness and the miracle of healing is purposeful because the mission and the message of the gospel is this. It's about, it's about forgiving sinners. It isn't about primarily fixing and healing the hardships of life. Sometimes it happens. Yes, it does. It does happen. It happens that God changes lives and and turns lives in a totally different direction. He does heal. He does do miraculous things. But those are a secondary joy of the gospel. Those are a secondary proof of the gospel. That's not the necessity of our hearts, to be honest. That's not the greatest need we have. The primary objective of Jesus is to forgive and redeem sinners back to God. And to be honest, that's a much more difficult thing than healing a body. Our hearts can so easily miss this, though, can't we? We can get so focused on the obvious needs of our life and the obvious needs of other lives. It reminds me of tech issues here on Sunday. And by the way, this illustration was in the sermon before the power went out, okay? But it really does. It does remind me of the tech issues we experience here on Sunday. Sometimes on Sunday morning, sometimes, maybe even today, um, we have issues with our technology, right? Now, let me tell you the worst pieces of advice you can give a tech person when there is a technical error. Okay, listen in closely, because if we hear you say this when there's a technical error, you will be putting a quarter in the swear jar. All right, do you understand? Here's the worst piece of advice you can give to someone when they're trying to solve a technical issue. Have you tried plugging it in? That is the worst thing you can say. Is it turned on? Right? When I'm solving a tech issue and someone asks me that question, I'm so tempted to be like Jesus and grab a cable and whip them out of the temple. Like, just like, come on. Of course I've checked if it's plugged in. Of course I've checked if it's turned on. Now, I say that's the worst thing you can ask, but I'll be honest, in the past few years of being here, I'll say 96.25% of the times, it's that it's not plugged in, and it's not turned on. (sighs) Now that I've vented three years of church planning frustrations, thank you, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. The reality is this. We need to get to the source of the problem. We need to get to the source of the problem. Is there power? Is it plugged in? The first issue that every person needs to address, that we need to address, that we need to point people to, is whether or not they have life and power in Christ through the forgiveness of sins. That's where we need to draw people to. 
we need to get to the source of the problem. The people in this story thought that man's most desperate need was his paralysis, but his paralysis was his most obvious need, not his most desperate one. His most desperate one was to be made right with God through forgiveness. And so similarly, we tend to focus on the most obvious need of our own lives. We tend to focus on the most obvious need of the lives around us. We see financial trouble, relationship issues, marriage, parenting, all these things, and that's where we start. We regularly look for help and offer help to the most obvious issues of life without even addressing unforgiven sin and the broken relationship people have with God. We are ignoring our deepest need. We offer advice like audiobooks and lifestyle changes. We say things like, How's your sleep? Have you tried adult coloring books? The source of our problems in life is sin. The core issues of our parenting, our marriage, our stress, our finances, the source of that issue is our sin and our sin against God. We need to get to the source and work our way out from there. If you came today looking for life hacks, if you came today looking for God to remove the obstacles, the issues of your life, here's what Jesus wants you to know. He wants you to know and he wants us all to know that he wants to start by relieving you of the weight of your sin and will work out from there. And so we're going to see this same principle again and again. We're going to see that throughout Scripture, especially when we get to Mark chapter 8 in the year of 2030, when we get there. Um, Mark chapter 8, 36, it says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man? What does it profit a man? Jesus is looking at this guy and saying, What does it profit a man if he can walk on the earth, but he will be spiritually dead for eternity? What will it profit a man if his marriage and finances are good, but he loses his soul? What will it profit a woman here in the Okanagan if she has lots of friends and lots of self-confidence, but she loses her soul? The best news, the best starting point for life change is in receiving the forgiveness of Jesus and the removal of sin and guilt. Listen, the direction of my life totally changed when I understood that Jesus had forgiven me of my sins. The direction of my life but I'll be honest, the habits of my life are dying slowly. The direction of my life totally changed. I was lifted from the weight of my guilt and sin, but it didn't just miraculously make me a good person. If only. <laughs> I still have a lot of habits to kill, so let's not try and focus on the obvious problems of our life. Let's start by addressing the most desperate one, the one for our relationship with God. Now, I can imagine two possible reactions this man might have had when he's lowered through the ceiling. His friends planned all this work to bring him to Jesus. They heard that he's the healer of bodies. They lower him, and he gets there, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Didn't heal him right away. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. I imagine that he either had two, one of two reactions, either relief or rejection. Can you, can you imagine, in this culture, all right, everyone assumed that it was probably his parents' sin or his sin that causes paralysis. That's common. People still think that about bad things in life. Imagine every day people looking at you as if you must have done something to deserve this. You must have done something to be in the state that you're in. You're probably getting what you deserved. Imagine for him playing through the theater of his mind every bad thing he's ever done, Every bad thing he's ever said, every bad thing he's ever thought, it's a dark place. It's a dark place, and I know what that's like. 
I know some of you here know what that's like to have the theater of your mind just reminding you just how guilty and sinful you are. But the Savior looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. You are right with your father, with God. Can you imagine the weightlessness he would have felt of the guilt of all that shame and all that sin just being lifted, knowing that the Savior of the world has said to you, you are forgiven. The price has been paid. I pray that everyone experiences the weightlessness, weightlessness of knowing that your sins are forgiven. Then if you have experienced that, if you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, may we never forget, may we never forget how much we needed to hear our sins are forgiven. Let's never forget the weightlessness of that lifted onto the cross and off of us. Let us never forget how much we never deserved that even to happen to us. Yet it did, thanks to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray that we are always compelled to our knees in worship, in, in, in prayer, constantly thanking God for the weight of our guilt being removed. May we relish the forgiveness of Christ as a church every time we're together. The forgiveness that Christ offers. But the other option that he might have re- responded with was rejection. This was not what he might have been expecting. And the scribes were similar. The scribes in this story rejected Christ and his authority. The scribes, it says in verse 7, it says this, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Sorry, they were thinking this. And as this passage concludes, we are appointed to the last value that we see Jesus reveal that Jesus came to demonstrate his authority. Read with me in verse 6. It says this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And this is verse 10. I love verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and it went out before them all. And they were amazed, and they glorified God. And they said, we have never seen anything like this. And so we've come to the third twist in this this story, in this moment with Jesus. The first twist is that Jesus commends the faith of these vandals (laughs) and interrupters. He commends their faith. The second twist is that he offers forgiveness instead of healing. And the third twist is this. He's now confronting the scribes' inner doubts and accusations with a secondary demonstration of his authority. He asks them, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to get up, take your mat, and go home? And the point that Jesus is making is this. It is easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's easy to say because no one can verify it has or hasn't with scientific evidence. You can't see sins removed. You can't hear sins removed. There's nothing measurable. And the, the point that Jesus is making is it's easier to say that, but it's a lot harder to say take up your mat and walk because if it doesn't happen, then he looks like a fraud. 
So Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus hinges the validity of his authority to forgive sins on his authority to heal this man's paralysis. This is called an a fortiori argument. It's an argument in which you prove the greater by the lesser. I wanted to say a fortiori. It just has like a nice Italian ring to it. Because it takes less authority to heal the body than it does to heal and forgive sins. Offering sins is offering forgiveness of sins is undoubtedly the most bold statement Jesus makes. Because forgiving sins isn't about ability, it's about authority. And the scribes, they challenge him. They challenge him and say, who has the ability to forgive sins? And Jesus answers them by saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. They're actually two, Greek, two different Greek words. Jesus is correcting them, actually, in their theology. And so far, Jesus has just demonstrated power and authority throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? He's, he's taught that he shows authority in his teaching, the authority to reveal truth to you and wisdom to you that was unknown and hidden. He has the authority to heal, the authority to free you from physical ailments and disabilities. He has the authority to cast out demons, the authority to free you to, from spiritual oppression. He has more authority than the demons. And now he's saying, I have authority to forgive. He's saying that he has the authority to release you from your guilt and from your criminal standing before God. That's a big claim. And the scribes questioned Jesus because they knew according to the Old Testament, only God can forgive. Only God can forgive sins. And for Jesus to say he forgives sins is for him to say he is God. And it makes sense that only God can forgive sins. Let's, let's think of it this way. If you come over to my house and you're driving and you're going to park, and as you park, you back into my neighbor's car, all right? If you back into my neighbor's car and you damage my neighbor's car, and I look at you and I go, it's okay, you're forgiven. <laughs> you're going to be like, what are you talking about? I damaged your neighbor's car. You're like, I need your neighbor to forgive me. I don't care what you think. I, look what I've done. Because forgiveness is an offer by the one offended, the one whose car you damaged. That person needs to let your offense go. Not, not another person. None of you are going to drive over to my house now, are you? Um, so in order for you to be forgiven by God, because your offense is against him, it would have to be God who lets your offense to go. So what the scribes knew well and what we need to know today is this, is that our sins aren't primarily an offense against ourselves. They're not a sin against us. They're not as much a sin against us as they are a sin against God. They're not a sin against the world around us and those that we've hurt as much as they're a sin against God. The one who is most offended and unjustly treated by our sins is God, the one who created you, the one who provides for you. Sin and justice, you've got to understand these things, we have to understand that these things are, are not about the size of the act you commit. They're not about uh, the scandal of what you do. It's more about the value of the person that you offend. You run over a spider with your car, no one will blink an eye. You run over a mailbox with your car, you should probably apologize. You run over a dog with your car, you're a bad person. <laughs> You run over a cat, not a big deal. But you run over, I'm just kidding, just kidding. I'm a cat person. But people like dogs more. Um, now you run over a person with your car, you're going to jail. 
right? It's the value of the one who is offended, the one who is victimed by your offense. That is really the important part, not what you did, not how fast you did it, but who it's been done to. And God is the most valuable, holy, benevolent being. He breathed life into you. He sustains our lives. He provides for our lives. He protects our lives. And he made us with a purpose. And with, he made us with inherent value beyond our comprehension. So when we sin, the scandal and the injustice of it is that we sinned against him. He deserves to be praised with holy worship He deserves so much more than our sin. Yet he is saying, when Jesus is saying this, he's saying if your your offense against God will be forgiven because I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying your offense against God is an offense against me and I forgive you of your sins. And even beyond that, he actually is saying, I will pay for your sins. I will make sure that this offense is taken care of. And if Jesus says you're forgiven, if he, when, he, when Jesus says you're forgiven, he says that you are forgiven because you are forgiven. Because he is God in the flesh. He's the son of man who has been given authority to forgive sins on earth. And part of that authority includes the responsibility of paying for those sins with his own life. So every tension within us that says we're not good enough, every thing that our minds and our hearts tell us, I I won't amount to anything, I need to look and prove that I'm better than I am, all of that, that's the weight of guilt. It's our soul's awareness that things are not right between us and God. It's our soul's awareness that what I've done is not what God wanted me to do. And the only freedom from those thoughts, the only freedom from that weight is through forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone paying for your sins on the cross. The only way to experience forgiveness is to hear it directly from the one whom we've offended, the one who created us, the one who loves us, our Jesus. And so Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins here on earth. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So since, since Jesus has claimed now that he has the authority to forgive sins, and the authority to forgive sins means that he has authority over everything, then there is nothing in this world, there is nothing beyond this world even, that has more authority than him. And that means he has the authority to supersede sickness and demons. It means that he has the authority to expose lies and malicious twistings of truth. It means that he can overrule institutions, he can overrule rulers, he can overrule countries. He has the authority over all. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. There is nothing we can face in this life. There is nothing we can face in this life that Jesus does not have authority over. Amen? And so if we put our trust in his authority to forgive our sins, then we must continue that journey and trust his authority to lead our path forward. We must trust his authority and his sovereignty over the present troubles of this world. We must trust his authority. Here's what I think will help us all today. I think it'd be great if we could all memorize just a portion of verse 10. All right, just look at your Bibles. Verse 10, maybe yours is a little bit different, but this is what it says. 
says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's so important for us to know. That's so important for our hearts to have deeply embedded within it that the word of God remind us that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Would you say it with me? The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we get to go out with. That's what we get to experience. That's what removes us from the weight of our guilt. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Would you bow your heads right now as the band is coming up and prayer partners as well? We all need to hear this. We all need to be reminded that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The problem of an old and familiar story is that our heads recognize its message, but today our hearts, it's our hearts that need to be more deeply renewed by its truth. So with our heads bowed, Maybe your head says Jesus can save. And maybe in your head it says he wants to save, but maybe doubt has creeped into your heart. Maybe you're doubting the goodness of God. Maybe you're doubting his patience with you. Maybe you're doubting that God is still effective and that he's relevant in this world that is so hurt and so lost. Maybe the name of someone who you have thought will never change is on your heart and on your mind. Be praying right now in your heart about that name and that Jesus would work powerfully. He can, and he longs to. Maybe we've forgotten the means by which Jesus' mission goes forward. Maybe we've forgotten that Jesus blesses the faith, our faith manifested into effort and activity. Maybe the joy and power of your relationship with him has grown cold. Because maybe we're not living actively for him. Maybe you're sitting on the sidelines passively. Listen, today we need to turn from our doubts. We need to turn from our idle and lazy faith. We need to step off the sidelines. We need to step out in belief that Jesus can still saves, that Jesus wants to change the lives of those around us. We need to live in faith that Jesus wants to change this city. We need to live in faith that Jesus wants to change this region, that he wants to change this country, that he wants to call sinners back to God. Lord, would you restore our faith and would you lead us away from our doubts? Or maybe today you came in hoping that Jesus would fix the obvious issues of your life. But what Jesus wants to do is to address your sin and your guilt. Maybe you've been unintentionally preaching and teaching the world's suggestions, the world's remedies. Instead of addressing the greatest need of humankind, maybe you need to tell someone today to repent and turn from their sins and to experience the forgiveness of God. I know for us all today, we need to declare and believe in the authority of the name of Jesus. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He is good. He is gracious. His death and resurrection is not in vain. His power to save is still available to you today, to all who call on his name. Our prayer partners are up here, and the band's going to play. Listen, don't wait to the end of the song. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait. Come up. Step out of the aisles. Step out here right into the sun if you need to. Don't let your heart steep in doubt. Don't let our hearts sit on the sideline. Let's address our broken relationship. I pray and I ask you, step out in faith. God will bless those who step out in active faith. Let me pray right now. Lord God, 
Jesus, King of kings and Savior of the world. We thank you and we praise you, Jesus, that you, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins on earth. We praise you and we thank you that you have removed the weight of our guilt and sin and you have bared it yourself on the cross. And we pray, O oh God, that you would be glorified, that we would sing with all of our hearts that we have a God who is mighty to save. And if he could save wretches like us, then he can change this city. He can change the heart of my spouse or my, my family member or my coworker. He can change this world. And so we submit to you and we ask you, oh Jesus, do a mighty work and save and forgive sins and make the lame to walk. Oh God, we ask this of you in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship our God who's mighty to save.